Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine, your favorite Bible history podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I am here with the amazing Helen Bond, professor of Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh. And today, Helen, we've got a really great guest, Matt Thiessen. Um, mm-hmm. you're, you're not a Twitter person, are you? <laughs> No, I'm not. I'm not. I, every now and then I think maybe I should get into this, but, but now it's not even Twitter anymore, is it? It's X. Oh, it's or X. So I know. I, I, I maybe I, missed my moment. I refuse to call it. <laughs> I have enough bad ways. Seriously. <laughs> without adding. Yeah. So I'm I'm not a social media person either, but I've I've done a little twittering in in association with the podcast. Our podcast, by the way, guys. If if you're our listeners, we are on Twitter. I don't say mm-hmm. things that are very interesting, but it is at. <laughs> Yeah, it's not even biblical time machine. It's at Bible time mash, or you know, the first part of machine. You'd go to our. I'll, I'll put the link. I'll put the link in the description. <laughs> My point is that one of the bright spots on Twitter for me is is Matthew Teeson or Matt Teeson. Um, I'm gonna give his little Twitter handle again. It's going to be in our description. It is at Matt Teeson NT. That NT is is for New Testament, and he is he's just funny. Like he's smart, and he makes little biblical scholar references, but it's mostly just <laughs> jokes, and he cracks me up every time. So if you if you're looking for a bright spot in your social media world, follow Matt Teason. Matt is a pro- associate professor of religious studies at McMaster University. And he's written two really fascinating books in the last few years, and they both talk about kind of our misunderstanding, our misreadings of Jesus's position to the Jewish impurity laws. Because like, Helen, what is, what's been the scholarly or even, you know, theological, I guess, interpretation of Jesus and these impurity laws kind of forever? Like what's, what do we kind of assume about it? Well, everyone says, always says, you know, Jesus was against impurity. Um, this is one of the things that, well, the impurity system, the impurity laws, you know, that, yeah. um, that, that, that this was something sort of very restrictive and Jewish and they're sort of, you know, good liberating Jesus was mm-hmm. sort of wiping these all away. Um, yeah, I mean, that's certainly what, what I was taught. And I think probably sure. what most people assume as well, because, you know, we don't have in certainly most of us nowadays in the West don't have these, these, um, purity laws anymore. Sure. So, so yeah. So I think Matt has got a really different take on this and it should be of real interest to people. I think yeah, it's no. something that you don't think about, you know, you don't think why, wh- what's going on here with these purity laws. And then when somebody suddenly starts, talking about them you think oh yeah you know that that whole thing makes so much sense yeah now matt does an amazing job of putting us in in the shoes of people in the first century and how they would have understood these these impurity laws and what jesus was doing so let me plug his book his most recent book from 2020 it's called jesus and the forces of death the gospel's portrayal of ritual impurity within first century judaism and if you want to read up a little bit more about um, purity, you can go to the Bible Odyssey website. Um, we're putting this out, of course, in conjunction with um, the Bible Odyssey over at SBL. And there's articles there on purity and holiness, sexual purity in Leviticus, and also something on priests and Levites in the first century CEs. So if you want to follow this up with a little bit more reading, then head over to Bible Odyssey. All right, well, let's get to our conversation with Matt Thiessen about ritual impurity in the first century. 
Well, hello, Matt Teason, and welcome to Biblical Time Machine. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's let's hop in the time machine. Let's let's travel back to the first century as we are wont to do, and uh, I, I want to try to get a sense of kind of how how baked into everyday life were these impurity laws that we always talk about. So this for these people, like impurity laws weren't some abstract concept, were they? Uh, not at all. Um, you know, this is one of the hard things with, with talking about the ancient world is how do these texts reflect actual lived reality mm-hmm. on the ground? And one of the best things, I think, for thinking about ritual impurity is uh, we have a whole bunch of stepped baths, which are often referred to as mikvaot right. uh, in ancient Galilee and ancient Judea that we have been um, finding in archaeological digs of the last 50 or so years. We have over 800 of them mm. so far. They're everywhere, in other words. Mm. And so this is sort of that material culture or archaeological evidence that shows this was a widespread concern in the first century CE. And a lot of them were, were built or dug around this time period, the century before or during the first century CE. So purity concerns matter to a lot of people in the first century. And what were the major causes of ritual impurity? And I mean, what, what could you not do if you were impure? Yeah. So there are three sort of categories or main sources, physical sources of ritual impurity. Um, one, uh, genital discharges of blood or semen. Uh, a second one, which is almost always translated as leprosy, mm. uh, but it's actually a variety of relatively minor skin conditions the Greek is is lepra, um, and that's why we get people have rendered it as leprosy, but it's not, hmm. as far as we can tell. And then the third physical source are corpses. Hmm. So these are the three physical sources. They convey impurity to anybody who comes into contact or with corpses, even proximity to corpses. Um, and and the what matters about getting these impurities sort of onto your own body is that it. Uh, prohibits you from entering into sacred space related to Israel's God. So in the first century CE, that would be the temple in Jerusalem. You couldn't go up into it until you had been purified, whatever impurity you had contracted. So that's why they had the mikvaot and and sort of purity baths sort of on the way up to the temple, didn't they? Is that so that you can kind of, you clean yourself right at the end? So yeah, before you go in. So so how... How, how big a deal was it then in that case? I mean, if it's only going to stop you going into the, the temple, are most people impure most of the time and not really caring too much about it? Yeah. So this is, A, it's really important, but B, it only matters in very circumscribed moments uh, or places, really. And so, you know, don't think about ancient Jews as just constantly running to get purified and very, being very mm. anxious about contracting impurity. This you were going to become impure regularly, often. Uh, it was just going to happen. And by and large, it wasn't a big deal. Um, you just need to undergo the right bathing at the right time and don't bring it into the temple. So important, <laughs> but like not you know, drastic if you could get an impurity. And I think this is one of the big things to really stress is a lot of um, readers of Leviticus have often concluded, oh, ritual impurity is something sinful. It's sinful to become ritually impure. And that is absolutely not the case. Um, 
there's nothing wrong with uh, contracting impurity. It's what you do with it once you have it that matters. Don't go to the temple. That's the, that's the big bad no no. Well, that's yeah, that's that's a big question and a big you know misreading in my own mind. Like like you just said, when when I think about ritual impurity, I attach a moral value to it. So was that not how it was seen in, in the first century? By and large, no. Uh, Qumran might be a, a slight variation on this, and there there might be some reasons about that. But by and large, uh, ritual impurity. So the, part, one of the confusing things is that Leviticus uses the same Hebrew word for ritual impurity that it does for something called moral that we call moral impurity, mm-hmm. sin. Mm-hmm. And so the same word gets used, but the way that the authors talk about these two things, it's clear they're functioning very differently. And so. You know, people have said, oh, you become ritually impure after having sex. Clearly, Jews had a very negative view of sex mm. and thought it was sinful. Well, not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually much more of a Christian thing, if anything, not, <laughs> not a Jewish thing. And so there's no morality ascribed to becoming impure. It was a, mm-hmm. just a normal part of life. If you're an ancient Israelite or a Jew, you're going to become ritually impure often. You're not going to lose a whole lot of sleep over it. You're just going to bathe and observe a certain, usually it's time and bathing and you're clean and good to go again. Well, something, so you mentioned Leviticus, and I think that's where, this where, they, yeah, in Leviticus 10, where they kind of talk about these these purity or impurity laws. You, you do something really cool in your book, and you sort of break down some binaries, some some differences. There's, there's, there's these two different binaries. There's holy versus profane, and then there's pure versus impure. So can you kind of just help walk us through, you know, how that was laid out in Leviticus yeah. and what those binaries would have meant specifically to like the priests, right? This mostly had to do with what the priests were trying to do in their job. Is that, is that true? Yeah. 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 And the priestly realm more broadly, but so Leviticus 10, 10 is a, is a sort of great crystallization of this system. Uh, and their uh, Israel's God through Moses tells the priest, this is what you're supposed to do. Distinguish between the holy and the profane and the pure and the impure. That's one of their key jobs is to make distinctions uh, or separations. And so, and, and, and this is, I think, connected to this larger picture of God who really likes things neat and tidy and sort of in the right place and in the right categories. Um, sometimes I like to talk about the priestly God as a neat freak. Um, <laughs> and I think that's right. Uh, it's accurate. So holiness, all that has to do, so that the, the one binary is holy and profane. Um, everything is either holy or it's profane. And most things are just profane. Um, and all that means is they're not something. They're not holy. They're just for regular common use. Uh, doesn't mean they're bad. Uh, you know, Sunday through Friday afternoon are, uh, well, Saturday evening through um, Friday afternoon are profane time. Doesn't mean they're sinful. Uh, they're just normal days for everyday normal use. Sabbath is holy. It's set apart for God. And so certain things can't happen there. Um, same with temple. The temple's holy. doesn't mean everything outside the temple is bad. Um, so that's holy and profane. Okay. And holiness just really means set apart and separated and, and, uh, in some way connected closely to Israel's God, uh, it's very easy, and scholars and clergy and lay people have done this over and over again, uh, conflated holy and profane with pure and impure, that holy equals pure, 
profane equals impure. Mm. And that's, that's a mistake. Uh, it's a mapping mistake that creates a lot of confusion. Um, there are four separate categories. And so uh, purity and impurity. Um, well, impurity really just, just as I mentioned, it relates to either ritual or, or moral impurity, uh, something sinful or something that has to do with Israel's cult in the temple. And uh, that precludes you from going up to that temple or before that, the tent of meeting. And so those are the categories. What's the one sort of wrinkle in this? And this is something that scholars like Mary Douglas and Jacob Milgram and others have argued is that holiness and impurity function like um, forces of nature. They're active. Hmm. So you can contract impurity by touching a corpse or being in a room with a corpse. And there are times where you can contract holiness if you're in, in well, something can contract holiness if it's in the temple and it touches something that's supercharged with holiness. So there are these two forces, and it's actually when these two forces come into close contact that sparks, cultic sparks start to fly. Mm. And so you want to be very careful with any impurity coming into the temple. Because when it does, if it's not treated and dealt with properly, um, bad things will definitely happen. <laughs> and so that's the whole system. Let's keep this equilibrium going with these two binaries. Keep impurity away from holiness as much as possible um, and clean it up when it gets in there as quickly as possible. And Jews weren't the only people to have an idea of impurity, yeah. were they, or purity, or how, how widespread was it throughout the Mediterranean? Are, are Jews sort yeah. of more interested in purity and impurity than other people? Or why, why do we kind of seem to associate it with Jews more than anybody else? Yeah, it's such a fantastic question. Uh, and it's not something I was in the middle of writing this when I uh, agreed to write a, a lengthy book review on a, on a collected a series of collected essays. And it was all about ritual impurity in different cultures in the ancient mm, Mediterranean world. And it never really hit me. Oh, this is just like, it's the common tongue. Mm. Now, there are local idioms, right? There are local variations on the common tongue. So what Jews thought made one ritually impure weren't necessarily the same things as what ancient Greeks or Hittites or Assyrians or Egyptians had to say. And so everybody has their own... Um, impurity system. They all agree things make you impure almost always, if not always. I don't want to say that, but I think almost always death is integral to these systems. Death is not something to bring close to the gods. Mm. So, um, of course, we just don't know. The general person doesn't know you know, ancient Egyptian literature <laughs> and ancient Greek inscriptions that say, don't come in here if you've just given childbirth. All we know, if anything, is things like Leviticus. And so to us, it's like, oh, this is something so distinct and unique mm -hmm. to Jews and so weird and foreign to us, perhaps, that we forget this is actually just common in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, that's a great that's a great question, Helen. Thanks for mm -hmm. broadening that out to the to the big picture. Um all right, well let's 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 get to the topic of, of one of your recent books. Um I think it is so easy for us to read the new Testament and to walk away with the belief that Jesus didn't like these impurity laws, <laughs> that in fact he he showed up to kind of get rid of all these, all these strict laws. And he had a whole different way of doing things that was, you know, in opposition to Judaism and it's, and it's rules, particularly these impurity laws. So 
are we getting that wrong? I'm I'm really teeing this up for you, Matt. I I, I feel like <laughs> here's the p- softball pitch. Okay, hit it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I wrote a whole book about this because uh, I believe quite firmly we got it wrong. Oh yeah, we did. Um, okay. We got it very wrong, and so, and you know, part of it is we know we have these things like Leviticus that talk about impurities, and then down the road we know we have something called Christianity, which generally, but actually not entirely, um, but especially in the West, doesn't work with ritual purity systems, um, or at least a aware of any ritual purity systems they might be working with. And so then, well, where did this happen? Well, of course, it's got to go back to Jesus or maybe Paul. Um, or <laughs> both. And so that's what happens, uh, I think, when we read the Gospels. And of course, I guess I can use a, an analogy from Saskatoon. In, in winter, any, any civilized place shovels the snow off of roads. You go far enough north, there's no point because um, it's just too much snow. But what happens then is you drive your vehicles and you create ruts in the road, in the snow. And once you get into January, there's no driving anywhere else. You just stick in the ruts. Um, and I think that is roughly what has happened mm. in biblical interpretation. It's the easiest place to go because the ruts are already there. These readings are already there. So when we read Mark or Matthew or Luke or John, we just fall into these interpretive ruts not realizing there might be other ways to read it because it's just so much easier to go with the traffic that's already uh, driven down this road. So Jesus doesn't say very much about purity in, in the new Testament, does he? Or, I mean, or is, is that kind of the point that he just assumes yeah. it? So there's one key place, Mark seven, <laughs> where yeah. he does talk about purity and we can talk about that. Um, I, I, I made that an appendix of my book because I think it's a different form of impurity. But what we get are stories of Jesus and impurity. So, you know, for me, it took reading Milgram uh, some years ago, reading all of his work on Leviticus and Numbers, and all of a sudden I'm realizing, wait a minute, these three categories that that you asked me about, genital discharges of blood or semen, this skin condition that the Greek calls lepra, and corpses, Jesus interacts with all three Mm. sources. Mm. Um, It had never hit me before. And so... uh, I realized, wait a minute, we have stories of Jesus dealing with ritually impure people. Now, what's happening in these actual stories? At the end of the stories, everybody's uh, pure, or at least on their way to purity, because the condition that causes it, causes the impurity is gone. And so many interpreters have taken those stories and said, oh, look, Jesus is getting rid of the impurity. Clearly, impurity doesn't matter anymore. He's abolishing the ritual purity system. And I, I think that's such a very odd um, inference to draw from these stories, because if Jesus didn't care about ritual impurity, he would have just said, "Hey, you have lepra. It's a minor skin condition. Don't worry about it. Just yeah. go to the temple already." <laughs> um, this woman who has this twelve-year genital discharge. Don't worry about it. I mean, this is more of a medical condition, so you can see compassion uh, as one angle without necessarily needing impurity. Um, but again, it doesn't. He doesn't say, "Don't worry about the impurity." The impurities matter. And every time Jesus comes into contact in the narrative worlds of the Gospels mm. with someone who is ritually impure, at the end of the story, the ritual impurity or the thing causing that ritual impurity is gone. Corpses are walking. Uh, genital discharger is no longer discharging. And people with these skin conditions no longer have them. To me, that looks like he cares. 
Yeah. So what 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 is he doing? If we take if we look deeper into this, uh, what was your interpretation of you know when Jesus heals yeah. somebody and says you are clean? What is what is he doing? Yep. So let me connect this to my previous answer. Yeah. I should really point out that we have healings. We have ritual impurities already removed in other stories prior to the New Testament. We have corpses getting raised by Elijah and Elisha. Mm-hmm. We have someone with lepra, Naaman, who gets cured of his lepra. Moses prays and intercedes on behalf of his sister Miriam, who has lepra, and it disappears. Mm. No one ever concludes from any of that. As far as I know, no one ever says, well, Moses didn't care about ritual impurity. <laughs> That's so true. there's a real double standard yeah. there between mm. Jesus and these mm. earlier Jewish characters. Um, so there's the one thing. If he's not getting rid of ritual, sorry, the system, he's definitely getting rid of the impurities. If he's not getting rid of the system, what's he doing? And this is where, again, it was really, uh, again, Milgram who pointed out that impurities seem to represent, in in Leviticus and ancient Jewish thought, often seem to represent, um, he would argue death. Others would argue more broadly, a little bit mortality. Corpses don't need any uh, explanation. They're dead. Lepra, the skin condition, we have a number of texts both in the Hebrew Bible, um, including the story of Miriam, but then in later uh, Jewish literature that people with the skin condition were identified with or parallel to corpses, Mm. sort of like the walking dead. Mm. And then genital discharges of blood or semen. um, Milgram would argue that, well, well, Leviticus clearly says, and Genesis does too, that blood represents or contains or is identified with life. And so the loss of genital blood is the loss of life force. Hmm. Um, And since ancient scientists connected semen with blood, it would be a similar thing. So he takes all these things as representing death. And thus the opposite force, holiness, as representing life. And so in, in my book, I argued that in the Gospels, what you get are these stories of Jesus coming into contact with the forces of death, these impurities, in constantly beating them in these little tiny battles on a, on a sort of microcosm uh, level of, of individual uh, relationships. And it's all connected to the gospel writers' um, belief that eventually Jesus will conquer death itself and be raised from the dead. And so mm. there's this connection that you, you, you don't actually see, I don't think, unless you see how significant ritual impurity is in the gospels. So all of it, in other words, is this, it's a, it's a cosmic purification. Jesus, I like to think of his mission as a purification mission. Hmm. He purifies moral impurities. He forgives sins. He gets rid of ritual impurities and he gets rid of spiritual impurities, the demonic forces that we hear about hmm. uh, in the synoptic gospels. Um, he's cleansing and purifying the earth mm-hmm. uh, of forces of death. So things are sort of flowing the opposite way to normal instead of him touching the woman with the flow of blood and becoming impure himself, as yeah. as presumably most people would. It's kind of his his power, his holiness, whatever, is kind of strong enough to go the other way and, and, and purify her. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that is exactly how to think about it. As these forces, these charges, and usually impurity is the stronger force and cancels out what's going on in the next person. Mm. But, uh, you know, Mark especially identifies Jesus with the Holy One of God. 
Um, and we have this language of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he's this supercharged presence of holiness <laughs> now bouncing around on earth where there are all these impurities are. And so whenever they come into contact, sparks will fly. But in this case, the sparks are flying in one direction and destroying impurities because the holiness is so powerful. Yeah. Well, that and which, of course, raises raises all kinds of interesting questions about, you know, well, who who is this Jesus guy? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I think, you know, Mark and Matthew and Luke are trying to convey and they don't tell us, you know, here they don't give us here 10 articles of faith on Jesus, but they're trying to convey it through narrative. Yeah. So do you think, you know, obviously the Gospels still took a while before they were written and, and distributed before the first, you know, readers or listeners to these stories being so close to this this time and place that you're describing, like, would they have understood them in a different way? Would they have, like, intuitively understood this Jesus has this incredible purifying power? Would that have been maybe one of the yeah. things that hit them the hardest? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I mean, any Jewish reader, I think, um, or listener is going to hear these things and think, well, you just mentioned this person with lepra that evokes Leviticus 14 and 15, or sorry, 13 and 14. Uh, here's a genital discharger, this someone from Leviticus 15 mm. and corpses numbers 19. They're going to think of these things and this whole, I mean, they may not even think about those texts. They just may know these are our cultural practices. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're tuned to it. And any non-Jewish reader, you know, I think the gospel writers, they're hoping that their readers know, know Jewish scriptures, whoever they are. Mm. That's sort of the ideal reader. So the ideal reader is going to get this and any reader who's not ideal is already going to be able to fall back on many of the non-Jewish purity systems. Uh, so they'll get some of it, maybe not all of it, but they'll get some of it. And it's us who don't get it. <laughs> or don't get it as right? We're just so far removed from these worlds that we mm. we don't see. Yeah. That's true. I mean, it's just a small change, really, that you're suggesting, but actually yeah. it makes a huge, huge difference. I think that's yeah. that's really interesting that just a, a slight shift in our way of looking at things can just change the whole picture. So, Matt, yeah, we, we, we have our Time Travelers Club, which is this exclusive club for for people who support us. And, and one of the perks is that they get to ask one of their questions to our guests. So I have a question here from Amanda, and it's this is this is something I wondered too. Um, do scholars think that there was any kind of like ancient public health motivation mm. for these ritual impurity laws? Like, you know, from our modern perspective, we look at this and we're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Like, you, there's all this contagious stuff. Do you think they they didn't obviously know about germs and things like that? But was there? You think that was in anyway? She she says like, you know, is that just our modern way of looking at it, or do we think that there was an intuitive understanding that you got to kind of stay away from people? Or you're gonna you kind of have the cooties if you touch somebody with leprosy. Oh. You know, was that part of it? Yeah, it's a very common reading in in some sort of scholarly and more more apologetic wings. I think that we're trying to find a logic that makes sense to us. And of course, the the leprosy is a great example, right? Like. When you translate lepra as leprosy, we automatically, well, we don't automatically, we've been taught to bring in, you know, visions of, of Mother Teresa and horrific descriptions of what this medical condition is, many of which are actually outlandish and inaccurate, even mm -hmm. regarding modern leprosy or, or Hansen's disease. 
as soon as we say it's not Hansen's disease, it's something much closer to eczema <laughs> um, or eczema, depending on how we pronounce it, uh, or dandruff or something like that. It does all of a sudden you're like, well, this maybe isn't as mm. vital, a medical, as important a medical intervention as we were thinking previously. And so that's when that's when the purity stuff surfaces. Um, I don't think the ritual purity system had to do with hygiene, though. Um, even leprosy is not that contagious, actually. Mm. But this mm. isn't even leprosy. Um, this these are minor skin conditions, and so I don't think hygiene's on the table yeah. for that. And, and for that matter, when you think about this, is something that was pointed out to be by, by a medical anthropologist. If you think about the ritual bathing. A lot of these things are cisterns where the water is not getting, um, <laughs> what's the word here? Uh, cleaned frequently. Yeah. yeah. And so you're, <laughs> you're really going into like kind of cesspools. <laughs> like we would never go in this stuff ever. <sighs> you know, I think ancient and modern perceptions of cleanliness and hygiene differ. Sure. <laughs> but I don't think anybody would have looked at some of these ritual baths and said, I'm going in there and it's going to make me <laughs> hygienically safer. <laughs> um, so I, I don't think so. I get why we want to do it, but I think it then it, it papers over what's really going on in these texts. And it has to do not with hygiene, but with uh, proximity to Israel's God. We had Jody Magnus on the, on the program a little while ago, and Fantastic. she left us in no doubt whatsoever that we wouldn't, we wouldn't last a night <laughs> in <Yeah>. that, <laughs> in one of these yeah. pools and one of these places. Yeah. So what, what about John the Baptist then? What, what was, what was sort of going on with him? Was he, was he interested in purity and, and what's the whole sort of baptism immersion thing? Is this, is yeah. this a purification too? So it definitely is a purification. Um, at least, so, I mean, we can, <laughs> we can talk about the historical John the Baptist. We can talk about the narrative of John the Baptist. Starting with what the Gospels tell us, it's clearly a purification uh, for sin, not um, for ritual impurity, hmm. at least in, in those narrative worlds. Was that maybe part of it too? Possibly. And, and maybe the, the Gospel writers don't focus on that aspect in those moments. Um, this is where my my uh, my former dissertation supervisor Joel Marcus has written a book on on John the Baptist, and I think I'm more convinced by this than others. But he argues there's a there are so many similarities between John and the people at Qumran, mm. um, who he identifies as Essenes, that John must have had some connection to this group at one point. I think some of that's got to be I think that's got to be right in my mind. Either way, John is if we can trust Luke here from a priestly family. Uh, his dad, Zachariah, is a priest. And so there are concerns, priestly concerns around purity. Um, Qumran extends water bathing, ritual water bathing, not just to ritual impurity, but also to moral purifications. And John seems to be doing this as well. And it's interesting. It's not in um, stagnant water. It's in running water. And that, in ancient Jewish thinking, running water is actually a stronger ritual detergent than like standing water. And so maybe that conveys a sense of if this was just ritual impurity, we could use stagnant water, but I'm trying to get to the moral impurity. And that takes um, some connection with, with what the rabbis later call living waters, hmm. running, running water. Wow. And well, I, so I, I'm, I'm still trying to get to the bottom of, you know, if we've got this wrong about Jesus's position with ritual impurity, and it seems like we've gotten it wrong for just a couple millennia. 
Um, why did we get it so wrong? And can we blame Paul? I'd like to blame Paul. <laughs> is he the problem? Or is he, was he also saying the same thing, but we missed it when he was saying it? Yeah. So, I mean, Paul doesn't talk a lot about ritual impurity, uh-huh. although there is a little bit of concern around sex. Um, and at least some people he's writing to think we got to stop having sex. Which makes actually really good sense if you think you're the temple of God. Mm. Sex can't happen at the temple. And you have to wait a day and bathe before you go to the temple. So if you're all now this this receptacle or temple of God, how do you use your body? Are there certain things you can't do because you can't con- you can't get ritually impure safely anymore? And I think Paul's dealing with that in in uh First Corinthians, for instance. And there he's it's really a concession. He's no romantic. Um It's, you know, you get married and you have sex because uh, worse than that is not getting married and having improper forms of sex. (laughs) So (laughs) I think for him, it's okay. There's this thing happening. Your temples of God, but even worse than any ritual impurity that might come out of that is a moral impurity from uh, sexual misbehavior in Paul's mind. So that's not really answering your question. I don't think Paul's... I think Paul contributes to this perception, but I don't think Paul intended to. Let's put it that way. Um, and I should say there are lots, there's lots of evidence. I didn't, I didn't mention a lot of it in my book um, of early Christians who still observe ritual impurity, mm. non-Jewish and Jewish mm. uh, Christians who observe ritual impurity uh, and are told, well, you don't have to do that, or you actually do have to do this, especially around things like, like uh, the Eucharist. Um and how how to come to the table if you're a menstruant or you've just given birth? Hmm. Can you? Mm. Um, and it's it's interesting to see the different sort of legal positions that develop that that in persist around ritual impurity in early Christianity. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, like, what what time period are you finding those kind of references? Or uh, you see, th- well, <laughs> so I I don't go much past I don't much go past the second century in my own reading, but there's stuff in the fourth and fifth century you can find, but uh, you know even in Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism there have been um, rulings around what, when a new mother can return and take part in Mass huh. um, or or the Eucharist, and so um, it's persisted in some ways to this day in, in various ways, but not, not usually connected quite so loudly to mm. like Leviticus. Yeah. I can, I can imagine how that can persist because it's sort of very deeply ingrained this sense that you're impure. You're not, you're, you know, you can't come into the Holy space or whatever. It must be very difficult to, to, to jettison that if, if your whole upbringing has been to do with that and you've completely internalized it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. If you believe something holy and something impure coming into contact is very dangerous, very volatile. Mm-hmm. If you're, let's say you're a menstruant and it's Sunday, are you going to go up and take part in the body and blood of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Or are you going to think, well, that I'm not even sure anymore, but that's really sounds like it could be really dangerous. <laughs> and so you might just play it safe. Yeah, But there were, there were women, for instance, who, when they were menstruating, believed, we have this, I think in the um, Didascalia Apostolorum, that uh, we had women who stopped praying when they were menstruating because they were convinced that the Holy Spirit had left them. Mm-hmm. And you have, in someone's writing saying, 
the Holy Spirit is not leaving you. Please knock this off. You can pray. <laughs> but it's the logic makes really good sense on some level. Um, you, these two things can't cohabit the same you know, body at the same time. And so surely something else must be happening. The spirit mm-hmm. must've left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a point you made earlier. And I, I just wanted to reiterate cause it, it hit me pretty powerfully. I think you said this in your book that, you know, again, to try to put ourselves into the first century mindset or, or prior to the first century and think about like the dangers involved to think about, like you said, to bring an impure thing into the temple, it wasn't, necessarily a judgment on that person but it was like to protect that person right because you you could get zapped i mean that was the understanding it's both right it's you want to you want to keep god there Hmm. and you don't exactly you don't want to get zapped so it's it's this is something that a lot of new testament scholars have argued that jesus brings the sort of politics of compassion into a world and system of politics of purity or Mm -hmm. impurity Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, then that codes purity and impurity is very negative, mm-hmm. and that's Judaism. And then there's Christianity, compassionate. And, and Paula Fredrickson has written, a, as always, a very witty, insightful article where she. Or the title of it is um, "Compassion is to purity as fish is to bicycle," <laughs> and it's a fantastic title. I think it's. I think that the article in, in its you know argument is is really correct, but I also do think there's a compassion element to the purity system that you are protecting the people who are close to God, because God is not this, uh, not simply benevolent and easy to, to live with. God is a, a dangerous, powerful being who has to be approached carefully mm-hmm. and properly as, as God tells people to approach him. So when Jesus goes into the temple and has this sort of outburst, um, you know, it's normally, well, normally, a lot of people nowadays would say it's to do with the destruction of the temple. Do you think, it, is that the way you read it, or or do you think there's some element of purity going on, some challenge or something yeah. to do with purity? You know, yeah, so it often gets called, what, the purification of the temple. Well, the right? cleansing, I, yeah, yeah. It's not, yeah, the temple cleansing. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Um, and I know there's been a lot of pushback from and from scholars that I really, really respect, but I, I still can't help but think there's something right about that and actually better about calling it that. Because as soon as you think about it as a cleansing, it's suggesting this is actually important enough to clean. Mm. If it's no longer relevant or whatever else, don't bother with it. But the fact that Jesus gets so upset about misuse of the temple shows that Jesus really values the temple. It's got to be used properly. And if you don't, I'm going to get angry. Mm. Um, We don't get angry when someone, well, we don't get that angry, at least when someone trashes uh, our neighbor's house. Mm. We get much angrier when they trash our house. Um, <laughs> I, did, I guess I get angry at both, but that's probably not a good analogy. But uh, the temple's cleanliness only matters if the temple matters. Mm. And at least the way Mark, this is something I've never really worked on. I've wanted to. Um, the way Mark describes it actually evokes what the Levites and priests do in uh, chronicles with the temple. Some of the same language between the Septuagint uh, and Mark is found. There, there are th- like four parallels there. Oh, right, interesting. And it may or may not be intentional, mm-hmm. um, but it it sort of evokes that when I read it. And the priests are cleansing the temple to get it working properly again. And I think you could say that's maybe what Mark's Jesus is doing or trying to do. It just fails. 
Mm-hmm. And it's still a concern for the temple. Is there a little bit of destruction in there too, or completely uh, about cleansing? Yeah, I mean, I think Mark... I think Mark knows the end of the story here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's got to be lurking there, but it's sort of like a sort of one last ditch effort, maybe to sort of reset the cultic mm. scales. And I mean, of course, it's symbolic. It's not the entire temple Jesus is cleansing. That's That would take weeks. Um, <laughs> it's a little corner, but it's sort of a symbolic effort to stop the misuse and it gets ignored. And so then we know... If, if you leave the temple, I mean, this is what the priests, the priests, Leviticus and, and Ezekiel and others will say. If you let the temple fall into chaos and disorder and mess, sooner or later, God is, who's a neat freak in Leviticus, in priestly thinking, God is going to say, I can't live here anymore. I'm going nuts. Mm-hmm. And God will leave, which he does in Ezekiel. And then as soon as God leaves, this holy space is no longer holy. It's normal, profane. Mm-hmm. And it can be absolutely trashed. Um. You just don't want it to get there. <laughs> yeah, as happens with the Romans. He doesn't want it to get there. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting way to read it. Wow. Oh, this is this has been fascinating, Matt. What before before we let you go, we we did hint that the, that we had a surprise question. So this is you didn't want to you didn't want to know what it is. So here you go. We have a functioning time machine, of course, um, <laughs> yeah. and everyone, all of our guests are going to get a shot uh, in in using it. So. We have to know, because we got to do a lot of programming, um, where and when would you go or will you go when you get a shot <laughs> in our time machine? That's that's our last question. Uh, it's not it's not good enough to just say the first century, is it? Oh, that's no, the everybody obvious says answer, that. Yeah. That's what I do. Um, <sighs> Which bit? What do you really want to see? So I'm going to, I'm going to put first century. I'd love to see the temple in first, in the Mm. first century. Um, But no, let me give a different answer because that's too easy. (laughs) I I would, I would love, uh, I think this often actually when I, I love hiking and camping. um, I would love to see what North America looked like uh, before European colonizers came here. Ah. Which, of course, the irony is if I time travel here, I'd be a European colonizer. Um, <laughs> but uh, it would be fascinating just to come and see the vast wilderness and, and diversity of uh, flora and fauna that was here mm. before um, European colonization. All right. All right. Good yeah. answer. Yeah, Good really answer. interesting. Well, yeah. Thank you, Matt Thiessen. He again. You have to. Uh, you have to go read his entire book on this topic. The title again is "Jesus and the Forces of Death: The Gospel's Portrayal of Ritual Impurity Within First Century Judaism." So, please go out and read all about it. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, listeners. We will see all of you next time on Biblical Time Machine. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Biblical Time Machine. We love our listeners, and we hope you love what we do here. If you can, please help support the show by subscribing to the Time Travelers Club. It's an opportunity for you to to support the show and, and receive some cool perks in return. So find out more about the Time Travelers Club in the show description below. Thank you.